Hi, this is Giuseppe. Hi, this is Anthony. And you're listening to For the Love of Sophia. A philosophy podcast brought to you by the Public Philosophy Project. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email us at publicphilproject at gmail.com. Enjoy the ride. Okay, guys, we're back. We're back. Part two on this analytic and continental. Yes. And in the last one, we focused basically exclusively on the analytic stuff. Whereas in this episode, we're going to start to talk about the the continental stuff. Which is our specialty, allegedly. Supposedly. You even more than me, because you're the real deal. You are from the continent. The continent. (laughs) With a capital C. Yeah, definitely. Um, So we talked about... All the issues that are there with uh, with the analytic stuff, mm-hmm. uh, we also give. I think we gave credit uh, where it was due, right, yeah. and when it was due. Um, and uh, I think we're going to be able to go through a similar pattern when it comes to continental stuff. And I think we'll be able to get more in the weeds with this one yeah. since we have more like hands-on experience so to speak yeah and then and again while of course we are trained as you're saying in this tradition we are we see the issues with that right and some of the issues are the one that were identified by uh the analytics but there are others for example that they do not identify that to me are Hmm. as as you know as bad as, Mm -hmm. as the one that they identified uh the first thing that comes to mind is like from a certain perspective, the continental tradition is the default tradition, isn't it? For me, at least. It's like, that is philosophy, and then the analytic came. Uh, be- okay, and I think this is because it's more closely connected with the history of philosophy. Yes, exactly. So it's like, this is actual philosophy, and then the analytic thing is the one separating itself. Yes, exactly. Whereas the continentals just see themselves as being a continuation of everything that happened before them. Exactly, and, that, and there's a matter of pride almost right uh the continental uh pridely sport this history with them they we almost feel as we are directly descending from tallies right mm, it's like mm-hmm. it's a continuation as you usually say of this conversation right that's going that's been going on for 2700 years uh while the analytic guys were like well but we are different now mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. so i think this is a first a first distinction and uh, the first thing that that's we're talking about when it comes to continental stuff that that is like the default. Do you agree that this is the default philosophy? That this is what that thing is. Yes. And uh, and that contrary to the the analytic stuff, that the history of philosophy really really matters there, right? Mm. Yes. To the point that I think one of the differences that can be made is if you talk to an uh, continental. A philosopher most likely if you ask him what is he studying what does he do the answer will be well i'm studying phenomenology or husserl or foucault or plato yes while instead if you talk to an analytic guy will say well i'm studying the mind i'm studying the the mm. brain mm. right is it isn't do you see this difference there it's and what does what do you think it means at the end of the day uh i think yeah because if you look at a continental school Right. Yep. If you search like 
Duquesne, if you search uh, Stony Brook, or like if you search uh, any, maybe the new school, like any of these places, yeah. uh, McGill is it? Is it the one in Canada? Yeah. Like any of these places that do continental stuff, you're going to see people's area of specialization, and it's going to be one of two things a person's name yeah. or a historical movement. Yeah. It's going to be like Plato, Aristotle, German Romanticism. Yeah. Or it's going to be Kant, Hegel, and something. Yeah. Like, yes. It's going to be that. And why is that? Well, I think already it's like you said, because there's this connectedness to the history. Like I research Heidegger. Yeah. Like I am dedicated to Husserl. Yeah. Right. And I, and I, and I think of it like, so at least at Duquesne, you had a lot of people doing Husserl. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this stuff still hasn't been translated to English. Yep. So in a weird uh, way, there's people that are – this is like a burgeoning field where it's like, let yeah. me go to Germany and let me go to these places where they have these texts written in another language. And me having to learn German or French or whatever yep. is going to sit down and like transcribe this stuff. So it feels almost like <laughs> this, like mythical quest, yeah. Um, and something that I think that I don't know—you may not agree—but I think it does have this kind of like religiosity to it that the <laughs> that the analytic stuff doesn't. And okay. this is precisely what I like about it because there's this like wondrous element of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right; it's it's studying a historical figure. We don't. Okay, here's the th- weird thing I'm going to say. In a way, continental philosophy, methodologically speaking, is more conservative with regard to the philosophical history, mm-hmm. whereas the analytic ones are the more, um, you would say, divergent ones or something like that. Which is strange to think, since within the continental yes, philosophy, there's since like politically the, it goes the, the, yes. the, the, the postmodernism stuff, right? Yep. Um, yeah, but you get wait, what I mean by that. Yeah, no, no absolutely, because it, it, there's more of a there is in the continental tradition there's more respect. Let's say it's not even respect; it's like almost devotion. Oh yeah, towards the text. There's like a sacredness to and it, and the, the originality of it, right? So if you are talking, if you are studying Husserl. Nobody's going to take you seriously if you don't if you don't, cannot translate the German stuff, right? And this is for for everything, right? If you study in the ancients, I remember like when I first got into these things, I'm like, oh, I'm reading Aristotle, and then no, I wasn't really reading it because I was reading just the translation mm-hmm. in Italian. Mm-hmm. And if I don't have the Greek text next next to it, and I'm really trying to understand what the word means, I cannot trust this translation. And then you get into this translation is better than the other, and this is. So there is an emphasis on the original language there. There's the hermeneutic. Exactly, yes. exactly. Which, because probably in the analytic tradition, most things were in English, that's absent. It's not there. While the continental philosophy is more cosmopolitan. You have some philosopher from Italy, some from Spain, some from Germany, some from France. And you'll need, you'll, you start, some from, of course, Greece. Your dialogue is more, you know, open to the possibility that there are diverse ideas there. And that is the the progressive aspect of continental philosophy, if you want. Uh, the, well, the, the, the least conservative. But then when it comes to the text, you're right. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely conservative there. You were saying that you like this, right? 
Yeah, because I think it's like there's always something more. It kind of like... There's like this... It's not simple. Mm-hmm. It's it's not able to be reduced at the snap of a finger because some guy in a lab did a thing. It's like much more yeah. complex than that. Like one of the things I was thinking is if you look at a the, a comprehensive exam in a graduate program in analytic school, it might be like what lab work have you done? Like what have you published? What yeah. thing have you done? Where if you look at the the comprehensive exams at like Duquesne or something, it's it's literally <laughs> there's there's two comps. There's the first one and the second one. And you go in and it'll be like, explain philosophy from the pre-Socratics to the medieval. Go. And then you just have hours to write yep. about like this whole historical shift and attitudes yep. and how everything built upon everything. And it's this like beautiful artifice. Um, very different. Very, very, very different. Um and the thing about the translation, which is interesting, is I think, I don't want to straw man anyone, but I think for the analytics, they would see that as kind of superfluous. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you mean? They're only saying one thing. Whereas we're like, no, but is he using Objecta or Gegenstand? Because it has this different... And I think that's yeah. one reason why the continental tradition is historical, is because the, since we're reading other languages, mm-hmm. you have to like look at how it's like situated within that conversation which requires you to know something about at least the philosophical culture of that time and it's mm-hmm. like you even trace it back to greece and you're like but what is the etymology of the like heidegger yeah. does this yeah, right yeah. it's almost like and this is a critique of it from the analytics it's almost like language has this kind of like essentialism to it that you're always searching for yep yeah, and this uh, is. Yeah. I think it's cool, but it is. It is. Uh, um, I like it too, of course. Um, I'm wondering if. But they, they would call it hypostasis. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm wondering if this is just. Uh, so, we like it, right? But would you say that aside from the, the so we're making the critique of, or the analytics saying they don't they they do not work with the history, mm-hmm. so they forget stuff, and then they they think they they discover like hot water again and mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, what are the advantages of this, though? Right? What is the aside from this almost religious experience, right, or the aesthetic mm-hmm. experience of going and being in this quest? What do you think is the advantage when it comes to actually finding answers when it comes to philosophy, right? Good question. Because it seems like that you get lost into, oh, let's let me, it, it becomes, isn't it, doesn't it become more like, I know everything. It doesn't come, doesn't become like erudition. I know mm. everything about Heidegger. So, <laughs> so <cares>. what? <laughs> right? So why is this good? good? Question. Yeah, I think the answer I would give is it allows for more nuance and more possibility with regard to conversation because okay. you're you can make such subtle distinctions like so if you have someone in the analytic tradition and they might take a word like substance they're like it means this mm-hmm. right or like existence it means this it ain't like that in continental because you're like well what root is it coming from like whereas Heidegger is like are you talking about essentia are you talking about existentia mm-hmm. are you talking about categories or existential like like mm-hmm. what there's all these different subtleties and yeah. 
uh, one of the critiques of the continental tradition is that they use this like what others would say is almost silly vocabulary and they're always inventing new words for things. Mm -hmm. But the reason they do that is because there's more to be talked about than the small toolkit of words the English language has. So we have to be able to make these subtle distinctions um, when you get to such a level of abstraction. It's like how you say there's some words in Italian that can't quite get translated to English. Mm -hmm. Or like maybe there's some words in Russian or some words in like Gaelic or something. Mm -hmm. And knowing the relation between those Mm -hmm. allows you to have a fuller understanding of the context of the conversation and also the subtle distinctions between like the different categories and subcategories and sub-subcategories of that type of thing. So I think if you don't do that, you might wind up conflating a bunch of stuff or ironically being unclear which is very unanalytic in spirit yeah um so if i hear you correctly you're saying that from one side we have in order to uh, to understand better the context and what's happening in that specific historical period and in that specific thinker's head right we need this right we need we need to to analyze and to to do this kind of stuff and on the other hand, you're saying that in reality, what the continentals are trying to do when they use language this way is not just, you know, erudition, pure erudition, is not just learning exactly everything about Heidegger, but is actually clarifying concepts kind of yes. similarly to what the analytics want to do with the Carnap language. Kind exactly. Of. It's precise. So I make this joke. I say it's not really analytic and continental philosophy. Really, there is analytic and hyper analytic. <laughs> sure, that, that's yeah. kind of how I think about it. And it's, yeah. a, it's an obsession with the truth. Yeah. Um, where truth is understood in a, in a broader sense, which requires like a lot more craziness right my hair standing up I'm, I'm, that's why you got the crazy <laughs> european guys at the cafe because they're like what the hell is going on but it's something like that okay so so you're saying that uh, so the answer to the question is in reality this um this well i don't know if we answered this really the dialogue with the heidegger the husserl the the cart the plato right mm-hmm. the goal of this um of this dialogue it is really still finding the truth, right? I will add, so I will add to what you're saying. You, you, you kind of uh, pinpointed and highlighted the role that this search within the language um, actually has within this search for the truth, right? I think another way to look at this, uh, complementary to that, is the fact that when we talk to those ancients, right? Because it's a dialogue that you open the moment you start reading what they're mm-hmm. saying, right? It's almost. It's also recognizing that there is wisdom, and that there is truth actually to what they're saying. Mm-hmm. That they're not obsolete. Right? It's not proto science. Exactly. Yes. It is already. There is at least uh, there can be as much truth in something that Plato wrote that it can be in something the scientist today writes, and it's kind of. It, we get to the point where we think, at least I want to say mostly what I think, that these two things are complementary most of the time, right? Whatever the, the scientist is telling me now, whatever Plato was saying, for example, right? I can use both of them to achieve 
to kind of realize this project, which is to find the truth or whatever. Yep. Whatever we want to say we're looking for, right? Um, which leads me to uh, a critique, if you want, the way we intend stuff besides the analytic. And I think that the contentals are a good reminder. They're good at reminding us this most of the time, which is the fact that the past is not trash. Mm -hmm. And that actually, and there's much more to say about this, uh, and that actually, but right now just limiting to the epistemological aspect of stuff or the ontological aspect of stuff. And there's actually, how can I say, uh, not just truth in what they say, but there's actual value. And that this idea that things get obsolete does not apply to anything that is intellectual. Yeah, may, maybe it applies to a computer. Yeah, applies to technological yeah. objects, not to intellectual objects, and which is a difference that we are unable to make. And I think that a fault for this, for the fact that we don't understand this anymore. So the analytic contributed to that, but I was remember in the first episode I was talking about uh, psychology, sociology, anthropology, mm -hmm. moving away from that. So all of a sudden, they, there is this rupture with philosophy when it comes to these disciplines, from a continental philosophy specifically, for reasons that are similar to the ones that the analytic will, will use. And they become enamored with the here and now and with the latest data. Think of sociology, for example. This is what we look at, the latest data, and everything that comes before is obsolete because it's not applicable at the here and now. It's not even worth analyzing anymore. And I think that usually continental philosophers are the ones that say, hold on, just pump the brakes there. It's not all numbers and data that you can use that are immediate now. They're like this instant gratification, things that in a minute you can toss away. This is not what Plato is. This is not what the philosophical tradition is. This is not what the humanities are. This is not what human sciences should be. Mm. Because human sciences leave a trace, almost, that comes from the past. And if you're enamored just with numbers of today, you're doing something different. You're not taking into consideration the fact that humans are not rocks or numbers. Yeah, and like you're you're constantly carrying forth what Gadamer would call tradition. Yes. In like any kind of saying and any any kind of doing. Exactly. Um, so it's and this is a thing that happens in class all the time where I'll teach some of this stuff, and they'll have this idea because of the the current paradigm. Yeah. That, well, that's the old way. Yeah. Right. And this is just wrong. And now we have science, and now Correct. I have an iPhone. So that, you know, maybe this is what... Pe but now we know a lot more. And I always have to be like, don't do that. That's not a real thing. Yeah. And I always say, like, a syllogism, like a logical argument, it doesn't matter what year it was made in. It still you know, works. <laughs> like, modus ponens is true 2,000 years ago, and it's true now, yeah. right? Um, but then... I, I mean, it's it's I, like, it's a bias towards... Um, Think of like Chulhan, like the hyper novelty, yep. the hyper like novelization of everything, like yep. more, 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 new, 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 just like the the additive and way the, of looking the, at that. And that's the, the, the upgrade stuff, right? Right. New upgrade, new upgrade. Yep. And it's, it's a side note here. We don't have to dwell on this, but I think it's kind of interesting. Um, and I wonder if people have brought this up before that on the one hand, it's the Continentals who acknowledge that the fact that something is old doesn't 
in itself necessarily um, mean that it's bad, and there could be a lot of uh, wisdom that not yep. only might be true but could prove valuable today. Um, but at the same, t- so it has that like kind of conservative hermeneutic in it. But at the same time, they'll take like a- an opposite stance in a more social political setting, which mm-hmm. is very interesting to me. And I don't want to like dwell on that. I don't mean to bring anything up. It's just no, no. something that I no, I understand. Think is like kind of a weird. How would you say? It, it's, yes, it's conflict not, almost. Com- yes. So I'm wondering though, if at the end of the day, and this hopefully one day we'll resolve this in uh, in our postmodernism episodes. Oh, there we go. Um, I think that there's a m- general misunderstanding on the way some of the stinkers that are associated with the more progressive, uh, you know leftism, whatever you want to call it, uh, social stuff, a stance, really have about the past. Mm. Because, and I'll use just an example that's very familiar to me. If you think of somebody like Foucault, which is considered to be, first of all, you know, oh, the paradigmatic postmodern. Like the one. The right, one that pe- the, okay. the people that use, the people use when it comes to gender and power and stuff like that, right? Then you go and read his stuff. And first of all, the knowledge... And the acumen when analyzing the ancients and the wisdom that he used from the ancients to make his argument and the fact that he says we need to go back to that most mm. of the time when it comes to this kind of stuff gives you an exact idea of how abused his mm. thought the way his way of thinking has been and I suspect that most of those things are like this I'm not, I'm not going to say all I'm yeah, not going to yeah. say all of them because I, I cannot make this, this this claim, but if we think that the guy that is considered to be this forefront about all this stuff, he's the one that writes, and most of his things, again, the the heterosexuality, which is the thing that's used for most of this stuff, if people will read past the first volume, mm. they will realize that all he does is talk about Greek and Roman stuff. Mm. And then he says, well, there are some things that are important here and we need to understand. And some of the things that we think actually come from there. And some of these are good. Some of these are less good. And we want to decide. And all he says is like, we need to decide if we really want to follow this or if we don't want to. Mm. That's all. That's It's like breaking down for you, which is what philo- content of philosophy exactly do, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of like Nietzsche too. Yeah. Right? Because on the one oh, hand, exactly. Nietzsche is like very historically, absolutely, like knows everything, right? He's a philologist. <laughs> right. And so he has all this historical knowledge of philosophy and all the linguistic knowledge. Yeah. And this is obviously informing like everything he does. Um, and yet, yeah, it, it's like interesting how people with a certain disposition could say a thing and then the thing be used to um, promote something that's like against the initial disposition. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, that's something we could talk about another time, but just something I noticed. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, and going to the, going back to the original question, right? Uh, how do we reconcile these two things? I don't think there is anything to reconcile because truly it's not a split. It's not a split mm. there. I think that it is the same uh, disposition there towards the the respect and the, the the look, but at the same time encouraging creativity. Yeah, which yeah. I think is something that uh, the the continental um, continental tradition is was accused by the analytics pretty much of not being creative, just dwelling always in the same thing. The basement, yes. exactly. 
But the truth is that what they try to do is to creatively use the things that are there. It doesn't mean that nothing new can come from the things that we study. Mm. Uh, even though there are some some people in the continental tradition that for 30 years they just study Hegel and they never get out of the basement, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, which is crazy. This is the crazy part that we don't like. Th- right? I, this is why I've said this on here before and I've said this before. This is an issue I had with grad school. Mm-hmm. We're like, all they did yeah. was just read philosophy all day. And I was like, I am not going to do that. <laughs> I can't do that. What is your life like? No, look, with the reading philosophy all day, not necessarily my thing. I like to do my other stuff too. But I have nothing against that. It's more the attitude, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that I will know everything there is to know about Hegel and then I know how to tie my shoes. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah, no, sure, sure. That is the yeah, issue. That makes for me. sense. Uh, because to me, I if I spend fifteen hours a day reading Plato, then that needs to help me in the life that I live for the other nine hours. Right. If that doesn't help, that becomes just it's an like exercise. Vice. It's exactly. anti-virtue. Exactly. Right? It's just an exercise in me wanting to be cool when I mm. when I say the word ego, and you can tell me everything there is to know about it which yeah, is yeah. not going to happen any very often so um, so that that is okay. I, I think the historical thing there is there is this aff- this affection to the to the historical stuff and i think that they're good reminders to to the fact that we need to respect those things i think that's true um, do you also see this i was going to say i think the continental tradition allows for and in its best form allows for in its worst form only relies upon introspection whereas the Mm. analytic tradition is completely rejecting this kind of thing because it's like not objective so in other words the continental tradition preserves some element of subjectivity which is which would aggravate people because there's a lot of people in the continental tradition that are like oh i'm getting outside the subject but like i i think there's a weird word gap there all i mean is values a kind of uh exploration of the logic that presents itself within my internal consciousness Mm -hmm. whereas if you're doing analytic philosophy you're like where's the behavior where is the brain scans, like the cognitive science, what's going on there? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's, a, there's a, a, a preservation of interiority. Would you say that's correct? Uh, so I like the distinction you made at the beginning when you said in its, in, when, in its purest form, in the best way, uh, when, it's, when it's done correctly kind of thing, right? Continental philosophy allows for that. And that is worst. Instead, it relies only on that. And I agree with that. Um, I think the continental philosophy allows for some form of, um, if you want, even biographical. Uh, how can we say? Allow allows for for what you were talking about. Um, the problem becomes when he only does that, right? But then it becomes just it's like a, it's egoism in a way, it's relativism yeah. in a way, right? Yeah, like like. Yes, yes, absolutely. Which I think uh, is a good. Th- this question is a is a good intro to those issues, right? Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. So that within, uh, for obvious reason, I want to say, within analytic philosophy, 
there's no issues of relativism or egoism or individualism or just this this there's no partial point of view if you want in these terms right mm. there's not a partial point of view there is the eye from nowhere the the, the 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 eye of god you know that that tells me exactly the way things are but within continental philosophy because of some skeptical attitude the most continental philosopher have there is a tendency there are some of these people that eventually end up going in the direction of relativism egoism hyper idealism hyper idealism subjectivism and mm -hmm. stuff like that um how do we deal with this right how do and you know we have talked about the stuff like more or less a little bit on the air uh, but everything that has to do with with this very subjective perspective, right? With this mm -hmm. very, how do we deal with this? How do you think? F first of all, do you, do you find is it is it correct? Do you think that that it's more of a continental issue than an analytical issue? Yes, and I think they I'm in assuming. their worst form it's an excess on both sides. On both sides, you yes. think? Why do you think? On no, both no, sides? I'm sorry. The an an excess. Not this particular excess, because okay. the excess of the analytic tradition would be absolutely no subjecthood yep. involved. That's all I meant. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. But what was the next thing you were going to... Uh, I was saying, like, what do you think... So is this avoidable somehow, or is this, like, one of those inevitable side effects, right? It's like when you take whatever a medicine and it's like, mm. eh, this is going to gonna come with the territory, right? Like how the Stoics would say, the allowance of any pleasure, yeah. like you're just, you're you're getting addicted in slow motion. Yeah. yeah. Is this just you're becoming radically interior slowly? Yeah. Um, I think it's avoidable. And I think the fact that we do not fall into a radical position is kind of proof of this. Um, but I think it requires you to go to be more. Uh, it's weird because I was, I was going to say, you ever get in a situation where you want to use a word to describe something yeah. and you say it's a perfect fit, but at the same time, it's also the exact opposite of what you want to say. So I was going to say in the one sense, Continental philosophy can mm -hmm. become too, in its reverence, um, ideological. Uh -huh. um, it could become too, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the opposite of pluralistic. Mm -hmm. Almost like I just quote someone and yeah. it's like a Bible verse. Like authority principle all like the way authority down. principle i've in my experience this has happened with hegel mm -hmm. this has happened with marx you might say it's happened with heidegger it's yep. happened a lot of it, right so i feel like if you do that and it becomes a closed system mm -hmm. then you you know you close yourself off from everything else and it becomes this like radical excess of of the individual or whatever and only that mm -hmm. um so i think you kind of have to have this openness um but not too much openness, because then if you're hyper pluralistic, then you go into the opposite direction, which is when you become in this like super relativistic way. So in a weird way, it's like in one sense, it has too much of X and mm -hmm. in another sense, it has too much of not X. And then the other one, in one sense, it has too much of Y and then another sense, it has too much of not Y. Mm -hmm. And I think it's all about like kind of recognizing the structures and, and, and trying to pull the best from both. I mean, I think it's fine to fall into one tradition. No matter where you go, I think it's just important to be 
mm. not dogmatic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, which hopefully this is what we do. <laughs> um, I'm wondering though if so. You're saying that it is avoidable at the end of the day. It is possible to avoid this thing. I think so. Um, I like to think that as well. However, I think that there is a there is something to be said about the fact that those so skepticism in general I think is a tool and it's a good tool to have and sometimes people get enamored with this tool in the continental tradition and that's all they do and mm -hmm. that's the problem and then becomes the excess of which we're talking about but I also think that the longer you study within the continental tradition the longer you end up being susceptible of falling for that trap mm. I think it's easier to, um, to so which is strange, right? Because you know, at the beginning, when somebody's very young and starts studying those kind of stuff, you would say that they go, they people go at first, and they everybody's a relativist at a certain point at the beginning, right? And then you grow out of it. I see though that eventually, towards after maturity, right after the peak, a lot of this continental uh, philosopher end up going towards a more relativistic or mm. subjectivistic mm. perspective. Um, and I'm wondering if this is just a deep by default, what's going to happen, what happens sometimes. Uh, but but again, it's not it's not necessarily in there. But the continental tradition, though, I've got, just to, to, to expand on this a little bit more, I also think that they're more open to listen and to get into a dialogue, even with this extreme positions while the analytic they will cut them out immediately right? mm. what are you talking about that's nonsensical mm -hmm. well within the continental tradition there is there is this dialogue open also with this kind of philosophy would you say yeah i think you're you will more easily find a continental person that talks about analytic stuff in a continental framework then you will find an analytic person talking about a continental person in an analytic framework. Yep. Like, there were more than a couple of times where in my graduate seminars at a supercontinental school, people would bring up, like, Quine, for example. Mm -hmm. Or people will bring up um, Carnap, not so much, but a couple different people. Like, I remember it happening in my Husserl class, too. There was this kind of... Uh, correspondence between him and some analytic people. So you want to ask why that is. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it's because there's more of that op uh, openness built into it, like you're saying. It could be that. It could be that. I I'm wondering if it's like... I, I was thinking in terms of drugs again, where like there's <laughs> the, the it has the potential to do this thing, but it also has the potential for like, you know, addiction, mm -hmm. hermit, whatever. Um I think you're right. I remember I was talking to Michael Humer once at a conference who I respect as an analytic political philosopher. Um, at the, his writing is super clear. Um, he does other stuff besides political philosophy. Um, but I asked him, I was like, oh, because he went to, I don't know if I told this on the air before, he went to, um, what's, that, what's the school? Was it Berkeley? Yeah, like back in the day. Um, and Dreyfus worked there, and he taught a Heidegger class. 
And he's like, oh, yeah, I took a class with that guy. And I was like, oh, because I have like a lot of issues with Breakfast, mm-hmm. but I recognize that that's like a cool historical yeah, event. And I'm like, oh, my God, what was it like? And he was like, do I don't even know anything that's going on. I remember anything. There was like a lot of nothing in that class. And I'm like, how could someone so intelligent yep. do that? And I think there's like almost an implicit bias. There is. In that when you become into the analytic philosopher, there's like – and you could argue that this goes both ways, and I think that's true. Almost like a pride mm-hmm. in the fact that I'm not the other thing, like <laughs> those things that are beneath us. Yeah, they don't put in the, they don't put themselves into this position of understanding things mm-hmm. because they decide it's already going to be nonsense. We see this with our students sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's not different from what from what they do. Um, yeah, that's it is interesting. I think that one of the other reasons why this happens is that inevitably. Those cutting edge things that the that the analytic philosopher did at the beginning of their when the split happened, and whatever they have done in the past almost one hundred years now, right? Uh, all these things inevitably become history, mm. and the moment they become history, then the continental oh interesting start appropriating it, right? And they yeah, can study yeah. it the same way in which they study Austral and stuff like that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the, the analytic ones are in this weird position where they have to say, this is not relevant. This is nonsense. Oh, wait a minute. I cannot say it's nonsense because this is us. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So how do you preserve it while going beyond? Exactly. Yeah, right? yeah. So, and I think that that is not an issue for the continentals because we can always kind of fold it back mm-hmm. to the present by, you know, Plato is still relevant. This mm. is still relevant. The same way. Quine is still relevant. Russell is still relevant. While the analytics have the problem, like, are they still relevant? Because if they are still relevant, then why stop there, right? Mm. Now they're caught into this contradiction. While instead, with the continental, there's no contradiction to studying any of those past stuff. What was it? Remember that article you sent me and Jonathan a few months ago where it was someone writing about how, like, Hegelian logic was left behind in favor of this new way or ways of doing logic and how, at least in this person's view, it's like coming full circle because now the issues that are arising in the, the new analytic logics are leading us back to, to the, Hegelian. the Hegelian one, which yeah. is very interesting. Yeah, that's kind of the issue there, right? Mm. Um, so the historical stuff we kind of explained away. Mm-hmm. We talked about the clarity stuff a little bit. You were saying that in reality when it comes to this obscure language, yeah, it's there because of the clarity stuff. It's it tries to be so clear that it appears unclear if you're not fully engaged in it. Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about this, a little more about this. I've heard you say with Kant, you want more, yes, and with Hegel, you want less. less definitely. <laughs> but so it's like you read Kant, right? I wish you have a copy of the the first critique. Ah, uh, no. Probably like, I feel like that'd be a funny, spontaneous thing to just hold on. I right. might, but the idea is that people will open up um, continental works and there'll be these super long German and or French sentences where there'll be like eight different clauses, like the blah 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 blah, which dash given the blah, 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 continues this comma, only in the context of blah, 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 M dash, <laughs> colon, 
like yeah. like there's all these different things and then you're like whoa that was one sentence and it just took up like seven lines yeah. right so people look at that and they're like what is going on and in a weird way it's kind of like an art form making a sentence like that but um I, people are intimidated by that and i think the reason that kant and husserl and heidegger do these things um and i will contend that it's more kant and husserl than heidegger even though that sounds weird i know um is because they're trying to make every single utterance perfect. Yes. It's like a hyper, you know how we say we're hyper obsessed with getting yeah. like a basic medical, meta, yeah. medical, metaphysical principles correct? I feel like there's also a, a hyper fascination with learning to express it in the most abstract but perfect form of the abstract language possible, mm-hmm. which is, you know, you yeah. look at this and you're like, what the fuck is this? Yes. So. Yeah. Number one, I didn't find the book that we're looking for oh, at the office. Okay. Um, there's a possibility that's over there, but I'm not even going to go over there. Okay. There's a bunch of things from Hume. Well, this is not what we're looking at. Yeah, yeah he's not bad. Well, uh, they wouldn't say he's bad. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, a couple of things about what you were just saying. Mm-hmm. So I think that there is this fear of those long sentences. And I think that... It when, comes off as pretentious. Yes, but there's also another issue, I think. I think that the... the Again, Jonathan's going to kill me. Uh, the analytic movement is the beginning or the downfall when it comes to attention and when it comes to deep reading mm. and when it comes to really sitting and engaging with the text. And the reason why they'll dislike it is because it requires that full immersion. Exactly, uh, exactly. So, of course, there is less... The modern life leaves us less time to engage with things like that because we all... We have a million things to do, all of us. While in the 1800s, there were less things to do, I guess. Um one might say, even though not everybody was engaged in doing these things, right? But we got to work, we do stuff, so we have less time to deal with these things. In the analytics, I think it was like, we don't need this, we just, let's make it skinny, right? Mm-hmm. Um, today, well, I think it will be unthinkable to write a book like The the Critique of Pure Reason. Nobody will read it. Mm. Um, but I'm saying, what happens is, now, we got after, again, 100 years of saying those things are bad, we need simplicity, we need simplicity, we need simplicity, we're at the point that if things are not hyper simple mm. and if they're not super short, if there is like just max is going to have a clause to be like subject, verb, object, no objectives. <laughs> otherwise, I know that, oh, this is too much to read, right? The so, dog walked. Exactly. Period. Yeah. And that's it. So now it's even worse, right? But I think that this begins at that point. Mm. This begins with that. And then and then goes down uh we are now we we have you know the famous article about the deep reading stuff i mm-hmm. think it's it's mm-hmm. a, it's a it's a good one so there is one side is that and this is again one day should i with analytics and one of the good things about the continentals that instead they still kind of tell you there's a barrier right you really want to think about this stuff you got to think about this stuff you're going to sit down and seriously th- th- this is not something you can do in an afternoon there's not something you have an hour i'll read a little bit and i'll no, you really need to engage with this because otherwise you won't understand. Mm. And when it comes to the fabric of reality, truth, how do we know things, I want that kind of attention. 
I don't want to just uh, look at things for a minute. Oh, I got it. Now, I, mm -hmm. please. Because then we got things wrong and we're in trouble. Because contrary to for some people might think, these are serious stuff. They're real consequences. Those ideas have real consequences to everyday life, to people's lives, right? I always make this example. Think of what it means to decide what a human being is, right? Mm. Then all of a sudden, depending on the criteria, you cut out a whole lot of beings, right? Think of what it means to try to understand who or what deserve rights. Mm -hmm. Depending on, and those are philosophical questions, right? Depending on what the answer is, then you'll get a kind of a universe or a different kind of universe. Mm -hmm. And I rather have people that are trying to understand these things really be engaged and paying mm -hmm. attention and read a seven sentences long paragraph that try to be precise than somebody that writes just a line on that. Yes, that's I think that's a good point. One thing. On the other end, though, as you know, I'm not a big fan, not of the Heidegger thinker necessarily. But of the expression. But method, the expression. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the issues with some continental philosophy, that he gets too much, mm -hmm. that he becomes such a jargon that it becomes not accessible, no matter how much you would love to access it, right? Um, and sometimes it's just the way your brain works, right? Uh, but there are things that are difficult. And then we get, you know, beyond Heidegger, we get to some French uh, thinkers or some other people that come after, where you have the impression that some of those things are really just fluff. You thinking Derrida? I'm thinking Derrida or Kingy. I'm thinking even uh, what's his name, the guy that you don't like at all. Levinas. Yes, <laughs> uh, that that you're reading this stuff and you're like, you know that there is no need to make it this way. Hmm. You can say the same thing and still make me think, but this is really you rubbing it in my face. The fact that you have that I need to really pay attention every second, and there is no need to do that. And he gets to the point where if the if there's no access point, if you're telling me that the only way I'm going to read your book and understand it, if to go back and start reading from Plato on mm -hmm. and get used to this, and even when I do that, I get to you and I really, really need to pay attention mm -hmm. because not it's not easy at all, then there's a problem because you want to give people an end, right? You want for people to be able to buy into the things that you're saying. Because otherwise it's self-referential, right? Yeah. And I think that with Heidegger, this is sometimes happens with Heidegger, especially mm -hmm. in some parts of uh, being in time. Um, and actually that's not, it's not terrible, but it's it's not the easiest. Mm. Thing. I think most people say the, the later Heidegger they have more of an issue with. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and with Derrida, there are some things that are great. But there are others that you're like, what? Why? Mm. Why? Right? Sometimes I felt the same way with some things about Foucault, but not as much. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, there are like, th this is the problem, right? Th this is when when I read these things, I kind of understand where Russell went. Like, what the hell? Mm -hmm, no more mm -hmm. of this, right? And you don't want to get that because then we get to the people that don't that, that they need to know exactly how long it's going to take to read this article because mm -hmm, otherwise mm -hmm. they're not going to read it, right? Like this is a two minute read. That's, yeah. So um, that, by the way, that's an insane thing. I remember when these things came out and you read, you know, online mm -hmm. newspaper, whatever it is, it says this is a two minutes read. Mm -hmm. Like according to 
my first question was like, <laughs> first of all, why do I need to know? Why it's, isn't, can I just, if it's longer than the time that I have, can I just save it and read it later? Mm. What, or do I need to know? That's true. Because the, the, if you think about it, the only purpose of those, how long it takes to read this thing is, is to let you know that if it's longer than X, I won't read it. Meaning only things that can take less than a certain amount of exactly. time can exist within my life. Exactly. That's the only purpose of that. Exactly. And how is this? And, I, so, and I'm culpable of this. And then I will read something like that. And if I sending an article, not to you, with you, I don't, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't pay, I don't pay you this courtesy because, <laughs> because I think that you like me don't care about that. Mm-hmm. But depending on what I'm sending an article, I'll be like, sorry, long read, mm. like it's bad because mm-hmm. it's long and oh my god, they're gonna take you. And I think it has to do with the medium, with the fact that we read on our phone and it's painful to read long mm-hmm. stuff on mm-hmm. our phone. But when these things came out, I was like, this is insane. This is crazy. In a sense, that's the analytics fault. <laughs> <laughs> and think about like, you know, just endless stream TikTok videos. Five seconds, five seconds, three seconds. Blah, 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 blah. And you're just watching this crazy stream and there's just never anything in your attention for more than half a second. Yeah. And this is the opposite of continental philosophy, isn't it? Yeah. So I on a word on the, the thing you were saying before, um, the buy-in thing. It reminds yep. me of... Uh, What's his face? What's the reptilian guy? Oh, uh, David Ike. David Ike. So you know, you remember oh, man. Jesse I Ventura? You of him. Not you, but the th- <laughs> do you remember uh, Jesse Ventura? He was yeah. like the wrestler and then the politician. Yeah. There's like this video of him confronting him. He's like, "Well, explain this to me." He's like a big dude, and he's yeah. and he's basically was telling him like the only way is if you buy into this thing and yeah. like listen to lectures and yeah. and he's like, "So you're telling me the only way I could know this is if I buy it and do all these things." And it kind of yeah. reminds me. It almost is like um like cult like in a way. Yeah. Um, def- definitely, I think there's definitely there there can be like a a, a cult of personality or something. Of it. Um, yeah. The other thing I was gonna say is when you in the continental tradition, when you have certain meth, should I call it a method? Certain ways of engaging with content, um, it could become almost like a gotcha. And it could, like deconstruction, for example, or like certain ways of interpreting social interaction, social political interaction. It could also be like, it's like, I can say this to every single thing that you say. Yeah. Right. And then it becomes like how you say a, ideological. an ideological, right? Yeah. It's like, it's a closed loop. And then you run into the issue of like, but what about the thing you are saying? Like, mm-hmm. does this exist outside of this thing yeah. or critiquing where you hold this like yeah. magical privileged powered uh, position where this doesn't apply to you or something? But uh, you definitely see that. Yeah. And, and again, to add on to what you were saying, there's this idea that uh, there's this, this thing that you apply to everything, right? You end up applying the same thing to everything, with the mm-hmm. construction, for example, right? But that is also somehow, I think, a, how can we say, a perversion of the original. And, you know, I, I'm not, I don't particularly like Derrida, for example, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I think there is viable stuff in there. Anyway, so whenever um, whenever I see uh, some of this Derrida work or some of the Foucault work or even some of the Levinas work, uh, as much as, again, I have no love. Uh, for him as well uh, and I see this 
applied out of the scope that was intended for. Mm. That is also when I think, you know what? We're using this thing as if it was the scientific method. Mm. We're using this thing as if, was, as if it was science, meaning that something that's universalizable that I can use in every instance, right? Mm -hmm. While specifically, these thinkers are developing tools to understand a very specific, uh, how can we say, slice of reality, mm. either intellectual reality, social reality, or whatever it is. Those are not blankets that can cover everything. I mean, within these thinkers, there is this idea, within, within the continental tradition, there is also this idea that some things are localized, either from, a, from the time perspective or from the space perspective. So the context is limited. You cannot apply this thing to everything because otherwise they do become ideologies. And mm -hmm. this is very clear to most continental philosophers. Like here's a spatula, you can use it in all these different contexts and it'll be the same every time. Exactly, right? Mm -hmm. There are some, well, there are some continental philosophers that become ideologues, no doubt about it, but most of them are warning us against those things. They're telling mm -hmm. you, listen, when we talk about this, this is what I'm talking about. Again, Foucault is the one that I know best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, when he talks about justice, right? When he talks about prisons, for example, because he is another one of those, you know, misused for this kind of stuff too. He's not talking to you about, he's talking about the disciplinary society. He's talking to you about specific thing. He's telling you, look, this prison is born and not for the, for the things that we're using it today. The prison is not an institution that's ever going to redeem anybody. There's no rehabilitation. And the reason why there's no rehabilitation within the prison system is because it was not meant for that. Mm. It was meant for something else, right? And then we eventually start modifying and we're telling ourselves all those things. And he goes through this historical analysis, of all those things, right? And he gets to the point where he talks about power and the disciplinary power and all this stuff. But he's talking about that specific thing. And then he starts talking about systems of power and he talks about disciplines and stuff like that. However, the only place where he's able to develop this, it is within that framework. Mm. Everywhere else is like, these we can be applied to this and that. But he doesn't do it and he doesn't do it for a reason because in certain situations, he doesn't fit. He's mm. unable to develop this. Um, and I think that this is a strength that the continental tradition has mm -hmm. that the other tradition does not instead it could be it could be it's, it seems again like one of those things where there's the at its best the at its worst yep. the potential for this the potential for that yep. something something else I was thinking was I don't think we've ever like talked about this explicitly um, sometimes I think that within the continental position we I don't know if I'm going to use this terminology exactly correctly, but we exchange. No, I don't want to use those terms, but it's almost like we exchange some kind of correspondence theory with regard to truth for some some overload coherentist or even foundationalist when we're like it's less about 
it's more about I'm painting a very vivid narrative in my mind about like the way things work and it has a million moving parts but they all connect in this perfect way like i can conceive Mm -hmm. of this crazy system Mm -hmm. and like the mere fact that in this hypothetical doing Mm -hmm. of the philosophy I can say there's like parts A through Z and they all connect in these ways and here's how it explains everything. It's like, therefore, it must be true. Like it's almost like Anselm with God, right? Mm -hmm. Like I can imagine this thing Mm -hmm. that's perfect and since it's perfect and that's it, that's the only criteria. It's just like this amazing production that I've made mentally and like Like check mark. The system takes president over everything else something like that okay. and i know we've kind of implicitly mentioned but i was i was thinking trying to think about it in another way mm-hmm. no it does you're right uh there is this idea that eventually if the narrative everything has to fit so we bend over backwards to to make it that mm-hmm. way and that's definitely not a good thing about mm-hmm. it uh yeah i agree with you you're right. like almost like in the way that um the analytics could how would you say like um dogmatically narrow-mindedly move towards uh like false absolute mm-hmm. truth or absolute knowledge this is like the continental version yeah of yeah. doing that or something absolutely absolutely agreed with that as well um and again it's not there's so so many issues with the continental tradition i again i don't want to i'm sure we're giving out the the vibe that we like this tradition mm-hmm. much more because i think we have had less criticism of it but for example thing that some and i think we've kind of touched upon this i think it's another way of saying something we already said there are some continental philosophers that revere the past too much mm-hmm. that it becomes kind of this is all there is to say has been said already mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there's nothing else that i can add like the end of philosophy exactly like this happens with hegel people yes, sometimes yes that's it it's i had uh when I was in grad school, I had this this professor. She hyper-specialized in Aristotle. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I prefer spending time with Aristotle than anyone who's alive right now. And I was like, <laughs> okay, that is worrisome, number one. And then she used to say also all the time, like, Aristotle already said everything mm-hmm. that there was to be said. It's just, we just need to understand when other people say things, my job is to show how whatever they said has already been said by Aristotle. That's funny because it was a guy I was thinking about earlier at Duquesne, who mm-hmm. was the chair, who was the exact same way. He was like an go. Aristotle specialist, yep. and he wrote like these magnificent tomes about mm-hmm. Aristotle. And he's like, and he would kind of laugh when he said it, but he was like, we just got to admit that he was right about everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, Aristotle does that to you, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but to tell you, there is this reverence, this absolute reverence to, to, to that. So, Again, let's recap. Yes. Uh, reverence to the past and respect the tradition. So the two sides mm-hmm. of the the, mm-hmm. the the two horns of the same of the same thing, right? Reverence to the past, not good. Uh, respect the tradition, the good aspect mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Hyper clarity, as you put it, to the point of what seems like obscurity. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other side is just saying things just to make things difficult, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
And what else? what was the third thing that we had for the for the analytics stuff? I'm trying to to draw a parallel there. Oh, um, the hermeneutics, like the the language, the, the like the importance of specific words and their development, the, the, yeah. almost like a like a etymological genealogy type things. Yes, yeah, so we like to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it can become an obsession because we can mm-hmm. hypothesize stuff, right? And then allowing for subjectivity, but sometimes it almost uh, doing that exclusively in, in excess. Exactly, and that is definitely not good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we have at this point a much clearer. Which I hope we have a much clearer understanding of how mm-hmm. this this tradition uh, do uh, diverge. Oh, I think that the I think we implicitly have talked about it. We haven't talked about uh, the the correspondent, uh, you know, in, in the analytic philosophy, we talked about the practicality mm-hmm, stuff, mm-hmm. right? They're very practical, while in the continental philosophy, there's less of that. It's like it's bad if it's yeah. practical. If it's, it's too, it's too, um, it's not as good as it's supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and do you think that is, is there any value in that? Why, why is the, why is practical bad? <laughs> I don't, I personally don't think it's intrinsically bad. Mm-hmm. I think it's not intrinsically good, <laughs> but I would say the same thing for theory. Yeah, I think it's like the difference between um, the person who's sitting in the armchair all day doing nothing ever, just like getting fat on his own theories, yeah. versus the guy that's like, I'm just running on every skyscraper building to the sky. <laughs> right? It's just like both of these things. So are we saying that at the end of the day, Aristotle is right? And we need more <laughs> Oh, yeah. I, you know what? I was thinking that at some point. I was like, man, I never thought I was right about this. Yeah, that's one of those things I got. Because he's back also to. in the middle of this. Like, he likes the practical stuff when he also like, yeah. right I feel stuff. like this is something that's happening as time like as time goes on and I do this stuff more. I'm always like, eh, all right. <laughs> Son of a gun. That guy. Um, so this was fun, mm-hmm. at least for us. Yeah, no, it's super fun. I think... Um, Maybe there was a kind of entry barrier uh, in terms yeah. of context and attention a little bit, but like we've been wanting to do this for a long time, and we yeah. had just done the reading group. So I hope that uh, you guys had found some value in this. And if you have any questions, please ask. I know we got sent to I we I slash we got sent a couple questions that mm-hmm. I haven't answered yet. Not because I <laughs> forgot about it, not because I don't think it's important, but because. The semester it was, was the semester was ending, and then now uh, other personal <laughs> things, let's say, are going on that are taking precedent. But uh, I will get back to that. Yep. Um, you will get back to that. Send any questions you have about this or anything or comments. Yeah, and uh, at the end of the day, if you are, if you want to make sure that we were not biased, go pick up a book. Oh yeah. Just go pick up a, either an analytic book or a, would you, what would you say? Uh, is it Chalmser, Chal, Chalmers' mm-hmm. book on consciousness is a good entry level? I think, yeah, that was analytic. like, that was nine. I always forget. I think it was the mid 90s, like mm-hmm. 94 or something. I don't know. Uh, the conscious mind is good because he, he does talk about how he's trying to situate stuff within a scientific framework, yeah. but in a way that goes beyond the way science currently mm-hmm. uh, works metaphysically. And it's good entry-level language-wise. Right? It's, it's accessible. Oh, yeah. I think it's super accessible. Um, I think I think Dennett, too. I think the back and forth between those guys is a good way to see how we tried to convey in the reading group that the analytic... And continental, like, 
methods, they aren't specific positions mm-hmm. because you could have many positions within it. Yeah. And the, like the Dennett Chalmers narrative is just is just one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- those are good ones. And if you want to kind of do the same thing, there's the Derrida Foucault uh, dialogue. Mm-hmm. And it's something that you can look at. Uh, again, same period, they talk about kind of the same things, but mm-hmm, they disagree. Mm-hmm. Not as easy to access, but... That, right. That, there it is, that entry barrier. Heidegger Husserl. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I was funny, it's funny because this came up once and my friend Jeff, I feel like he joked about uh, like Sartre... And they brought, he's like, well, yeah, they brought, like, they're just on speed all the time. So they're just like, I'm writing 900 pages right now. <laughs> so that's something that you could do too. And maybe we can, you know, if you, if you want suggestions, just write to us and we'll send you back some, Sounds some good. books. And remember, the easiest thing to do is start with Plato. <laughs> one that? step at a time. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> all right. See you guys. See you.